another episode of James Bond and Friends, a weekly podcast from your friends at MI6 HQ. James Bond is on assignment right now, so I'm your interim host, Paul Atkinson, and I'm joined today by Bill Koenig, David Lee, Ben Williams, Lisa Funnel, and James Page. Could you introduce yourselves, please? Hi, guys. I'm uh, Bill Koenig. I run a uh, blog called The Spy Command, and I suspect James Bond, by the time you hear this, is in the editing bay checking out his latest adventure, but we'll see. David Lee here. I run thejamesbondossier.com. I'm author of the complete guide to the drinks of James Bond, and I'm currently enjoying a lovely rum and coke. Hi there. Um, I'm Ben Williams. I'm a regular contributor to mi6hq.com and the magazine MI6 Confidential. Hi, everyone. I'm Lisa Funnel. I'm an associate professor at the University of Oklahoma. I'm the author with Klaus Dodds of the Geographies, Genders, and Geopolitics of James Bond and a bunch of other articles and chapters on the subject. I'm James Page, um, co-editor at MI6, MI6HQ.com. This week, I've been mostly researching patterns and knitting patterns for clown costumes. (laughs) (laughs) Rub it in. Rub it in. And he's wearing a red shirt. <laughs> this week we're uh, dispatching with our clown costumes and we're going to talk about something a little bit more serious in light of Naomi Harris's recent comments in the media about her interest in doing what she called a badass spin-off from the James Bond franchise All About Money Penny. We'd like to just sort of delve back into the collection, into the archive, and talk a little bit about Fleming and some of his female characters this week. Sort of do a bit of a compare and contrast between the books and the films before coming out at the other end and pitching our ideas for a Money Penny movie. Does everyone sound like that's going to be a bit of fun? Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Awesome. Awesome. I don't actually know where to start here because I uncharitably can't remember the first time I noticed Money Penny in the books. <laughs> well, can, can I make a suggestion? In Absolutely. the books, in the books, it was really kind of a split between two characters. You know, Money Penny was M's secretary, but the Double O agents had their own secretary. So, I says, I wonder if, like, when they started doing the movies, they decided to merge those two characters together. I think but, whether uh, or not the decision was was conscious, um, the the screen Money Penny is a combination of those two, without a doubt. In the books, Money Money Penny is is a much more more in the background maybe yeah yeah far far more in the background and you know she she's also uh, M's secretary and there's no way that any of the uh, uh, double o's would consider trying to sleep with her which is what they want to try and do with their own secretaries so i i think i think they definitely merged the two yeah and and in terms of the books you know forgive me i don't know the actual pronunciation correct pronunciation but leola you know she, she got the literary equivalent of more screen time than money penny did because bond interacted with her more than he did with money penny in the books do you think that's do you think that's part part of that was they didn't want to show other double o agents sharing an office in the early movies because they wanted to have all the attention on bond right whereas you know in the books it's, he shares an office with double o eight double o eleven right and that's which, you know, they stole for the sandbaggers, which we've discussed before. But um, Nobody likes an open plan workplace these days anyway. Right. Well, right. and but in the books, like the other double O's always were like off on assignment anyway. So it's like Bond sharing an office with two other guys. But conveniently, in terms of the story, it's like he's the only guy in the office. It's funny how it works yeah, out that's... that way. Yeah. yeah. 007, he always does his dusting. And 0011 always leaves his desk in the mess. I think that's true. Yeah. And 0011 was like off in Singapore, 
the the oh I can't remember that phrase now. Double eleven was like presumed lost, I think. Yeah, I think that, I think the understanding was that he'd been um, caught or like captured or something, and I d- didn't. There was also a mention of double oh six as well at some point being. Um, but we are we are kind of perhaps being tangential. We should be focusing back on back on yes back onto the uh, onto Money Penny and uh, Ponsonby. Bill alighted on the reason that my memory of the of the character was so sort of like fragmented in terms of her, her general impression upon me, and that's partly because probably I have much stronger association with yeah the Double O Six trees, um, Goodnight and Ponsby, like key characters or key relationships that James Bond has in the office, and I guess the really interesting and Ponsby later goes you know quits to go get married, like I forget which novel that was, but maybe Honor Majesty. It's on a, on a Majesty's Sign of the Times. Yeah, there's a reason for that, which is um, he named the character after uh, someone he knew who I believe was married to the Duke of Westminster. And she she hated the fact that uh, she uh, appeared in the books, and so she asked him to, to remove her, so so he married her off. Well, at, least, at, least she didn't get killed, at least she didn't get killed off. You know, that's yeah. what, have ha- what would happen like, in the films, yeah. Not, not like Paul... Uh, Paul Bach in the Raymond Benson continuation novel, Aye, as he says as he falls <laughs> off the mountain. <laughs> but I think there's something to be said here. I really read Ponsby as being like the predecessor of Money Penny in the cinematic series, and for a number of reasons compared to compared to Money Penny in, in the novels, who is sort of a blink and, and you sort of miss her character. And I feel like Fleming in his novels and in the early novels is really trying to understand the role of women in the workplace. And he expresses at various points concerns. He questions whether women should be working in general, let alone in the service. And I opened up my Moonraker to the heavily uh, tagged pages four to five in my version, where he starts talking about Ponsby. And I think he brings out really core elements that he's trying to work with and work through. So for instance, he refers to her as being tall and dark, having a reserved and unbroken beauty, Uh, talked about her uh, becoming a spinster who would join the army of women um, who had been married to their career. And so he's tapping into like a core stereotype for unmarried women. Women are typically valued for their reproductive capacity. And so we do have stereotypes like the spinster and the modern day, say, cat lady as being examples um, and representations to deter women from being single, unmarried and childless. So he's sort of tapping into the risks of being a woman in the service, Um, tapping into sort of the next paragraph, which you already mentioned. Um, The other members of the double O section had various times made uh, assaults on her virtue. And the language here reminds me a lot of and you only live twice when uh there's the uh, the description that connery's bond gives of the gyroplane little nelly and the other planes trying to tap in and and take away her virtue but she sort of fought to keep her virtue and it's interesting that fleming frames it as being um the way that she has to pacify the men in the office so really talking a lot about office dynamics possibly sexual harassment before we've even coined it but oftentimes uh, Uh, the role that women play in order to sort of preserve uh, their virtue, I guess, in the office place, but having to pacify the men in order to keep it 
um, collegial. And then sort of the big part that just stands out to me, if you were a woman, there wasn't much left for you for other relations. It was easier for men. They had an excuse for fragmentary affairs for them. Marriage and children in a home were out of the question if they were to be of any use in the field. Uh, and then he goes on, but for the women, an affair outside of the service automatically made you a security risk. And in the last analysis, you had a choice of resignation from the service and a normal life or of and I quote, perpetual concubinage to your king and country. And so I feel as though there's a lot that's packed in here. So for example, there's the idea, which is really pushed forward in the films, that if a man has sex with a woman, he can have all of these affairs and they mean little to nothing to him. But when a woman has sex with a man, she automatically falls in love. And so that is utilized in the film franchise as a reason why James Bond beds multiple women because they serve as tipping points where they will serve in his best interest rather than their own. But here it, it he really lays out this idea that if you're a woman and you sleep with a man, you are automatically a security risk, that you can no longer fulfill uh, your position. And I look this up, this perpetual concubine, being a perpetual concubine to king and country is an interesting term because I believe Queen Elizabeth began her rule three years before this book came out. And so I think there's an interesting gendered terminology being utilized. And to think about being married to the service is one thing to being presented as being a concubine to king and country, I think is, is a different level. So there's a lot in pages four to five, at least of my edition of Moonraker that lays out a lot of elements that seem to factor into the archetype of money penny the character and probably other women in the service. Um, but I've always really seen a strong direct link between, between the two. Which, which is interesting given, given all that, what you cited and the real life MI6, where you had all these guys who couldn't keep, couldn't keep their pants zipped. Um, it's, you know, it's like they the women are security risk. How about all these guys? We talked in a recent podcast about Kim Kim Philby, like you know, defecting to the to the Soviet Union just as From Russia with Love was starting to film, and it's like they were like all this stuff involving the men, but it's like, well, that doesn't matter. It's like the women are the security risk. Talking talking about uh, being married to the service, um, I, I believe that on at least one occasion and possibly others, um, Bond. Bond considers that he himself is married to the service as well. That's right. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not. I'm not going against what you're saying, Lisa. Mm -hmm. But uh, uh, it's just. Uh, it's just something that's uh, occurred to me. Yeah, and I, but I think there's a difference between being married to the service and being considered like oh, sure. a willing spouse, and at least like you know what I mean, like. I'd like to think that like in a partnership, you have that, that connection, but like being a concubine is, a, you're not at the same sort of level as like a spouse. No, no, absolutely. You know I mean? No, no, like no, no. I, I don't disagree with that at all. Yeah. That phrase just gets me where I'm like, you are like, oh, I don't know. Like, and, and does that mean then that she has to serve, she's a concubine to the service, then she's supposed to sit there and take in all of these advances from these service members? Like, that's also part of her job is to sort of, because there's sexual connotations to being a concubine, whereas a, a marital partner or a spouse, there might be sexual connotations to it, but usually there's like a lot more connection and a lot more 
I don't know, life and, 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 and roles that you have. Concubine usually typically means that you're sort of more of a sexual partner. One thing only, yeah. Lisa, do you think, on, and a question for the panel, do you think Fleming is being at all critical when he writes this? Like, is he observing this kind of process in society or this process that he saw in the workplace and commenting on it in a way that's sort of anything other than just like, well, this is the, these, these are the facts of the matter and they're not going to change? That language he uses is pretty visceral in a way that... W- I wouldn't have, and certainly in the 21st century, I wouldn't have expected people to be to be using that language, except under circumstances of like, you know, social commentary or something like that. Anyway, go Ben. I was going to say, it just it reminds me slightly of the language that he was using when he he talks about Vesper in Casino Royale and how, in some in some ways, she's a liability on a mission. Um, she gets in the way of him being able to uh, to do his job effectively. And this, this language is quite similar to the kind of language that he's using here in Boomraker in describing um, women in secretarial roles. Um, I think it's language of a time. Um, I think it is particularly Fleming's view uh, of, of things. Whether it's, um, whether it's accurate, it's certainly, I think, his kind of take on things. It seems to flow through, flow through the novels. Um, uh, it, doesn't, it doesn't seem to change drastically um even by the time we get to um golden gun he's still he's still kind of using this kind of terminology maybe i give him more credit than than he than he deserves for uh, for even pointing out the dynamic of the office or of the workplace <laughs> i think he's just he's just laying it flat up this is this is how it is and this is how he sees it and um he's he's um couching himself as a as an authority on um, on, on the uh, secret service and how it operates. I just want to add, in terms of the most recent, recent Anthony Horowitz novel, to me, one of the more interesting segments, interesting chapters, was Bonds Become a Double O, the novel set in 1950. And he's now, you know, he's now a double O, and he meets with the secretary, and they kind of get to know each each other and that's like to me that's actually one of the more interesting chapters in that novel because you know he's depicting the first time bond meets her and their discussions it's just it's not a dramatic chapter but i found it interesting just put it that way Hmm. one of the things i notice is that uh, what horowitz tends to do is to write very much as fleming might write but with a kind of um, a modern lens. So he he, he discusses um, sexuality, women's roles within sort of Fleming's world. He treats them differently uh, to how Fleming might have done. So it's quite a you know certainly how he he did with uh, Pussy Galore, and I think he he went a long way to addressing a lot of the uh, the homophobia with, within that. And rebalancing some of the some of the things, some of the attitudes that Fleming had. I did think he sort of balanced the the spirit of the era or the feeling of the era with well developed modern characters and appreciation for what had come after Fleming as well, not stepping on too many of the tropes. So to bring this back around to Money Penny, I guess the question I think I probably want to ask the panel is like, what what do we make of the the film character and what does she take as you describe that inadvertently or maybe discretionally an amalgam of a number of the office characters that. Fleming wrote. 
and what what is her relationship like with James Bond? And one of the things that always struck me was that it was never equal, but that she often pushed back at the right times and potentially in my in my estimation sort of like the the late Roger Moore era and even at times in in in, in the relationship between Money Penny and the Connery character there was just a few seconds of weakness that were alone time where where her where her intention to maybe you know fall into Bond's arms yeah, I, I, was I think slightly revealed but in general she's a much stronger character than a lot of the other uh fleming fleming bond woman in terms of knowing her position and knowing her role and being loyal to him and you know pushing back against bond in the uh, lois maxwell uh, her character um she, she can hold her own with bond easily uh i think um the as the character has progressed though i i think the character could easily be played by a man. It, it, there's no like a, it's like a, a gender-neutral character, like Tanner is as well. It could be anybody. I read something. It was probably around the time that Lois Maxwell passed away, where there were these quotes from her where she said that she and Connery talked about, okay, we have to play these scenes together, and so like that they kind of hashed out this idea that once upon a time bond and money penny like went off for a weekend and they knew it wouldn't work out in in terms of any kind of long-term relationship but there would be always be a familiarity they would always have a you know a, a deep relationship uh of some kind not a sexual relationship but so anyway it's like you know I have no idea if she, like she was like making that up for the interviewer, but I remember reading that. So watching those early uh, films, like yeah, that could be the idea that they had a relationship, but one that, as you say, wouldn't work because of the circumstances of their, their professional, but would always have some kind of deeper resonance to it. I think you see that within the um, Maxwell Connery films, but it does. The dynamic does change as we go on, and we get, you know, with uh, with Lazenby, we get the same old Bond, only more so. Um, and it's, yeah, I mean, and as, and as we even progress from there, the relationship certainly, certainly changes, and her character changes. Well, and in real life, Roger Moore and Lois Maxwell, you know, were acted together in an episode of The Saint. So by the time Roger Moore takes over the role, they know each other in real life. And, you know, there are probably some tweaks in the relationship, but, you know, there's still a fam- familiar. Didn't they go to the same drama school at some point? Yeah. I wanted to raise the issue of age. And this is something that I've noticed, not necessarily when it comes to the actors playing James Bond, but when it comes to his support system. And I always compare Lois Maxwell's Money Penny with Q. And. Um, you know, Lois Maxwell, her, her money penny, as she got older, almost became a joke or a parody. Um, she was presented more and more as this pining spinster that she was sort of too old, um, in her, in the way that she was pining for, for bond. And it got to the point that she had to be replaced in the series because she was 
possibly being considered to be too old to be in that position. Whereas somebody like um, Desmond Llewellyn, I can't say his name, um, as Llewellyn. Llewellyn, there we go. Llewellyn. Gosh, uh, he was able to age out in the role of Q. And so when you talk about this being a gender neutral sort of position, I do see it as a truly gendered position because you have different parameters when it comes to women, when it comes to the visibility of women who are 40 and older, just in cinematic history, they tend to disappear. Um, We don't have these types of representations. And even when she suggested, hey, how about I come back as M? If you're saying I'm, you know, I'm too old for this position and they were told, you know, never will we have a female M. Of course, you know, 10 years later, we get Judy Dench in that role. Uh, but we also get Judy Dench paired with Samantha Bond playing Money Penny, who plays a more active role. So she is outside of the office space. So she's not just in the inner well, to sanctum. Be fair, to be she said, Judy Dench was pretty active more. as well. <laughs> And Judy Dench is, is pretty active, right? And of course, though, with Judy Dench, but but not right away, not to like the third appearance. You know, suddenly with the third movie, she's suddenly going out in the field. Like the first two, she's in the office, and that makes her though more vulnerable, right? Where right. she's being yeah. caught and captured. Whereas Money Penny is not necessarily made vulnerable as more of a personal assistant rather than say sort of a traditional secretary. So for me, I saw a bit of an evolution or expansion in that role and Bond is being surrounded in the Brosnan era with more of a, I would probably say a stronger support system that tends to be populated more by women and possibly more competent women. So the Bond girls tend to be more capable and competent, um, more more action oriented during this time. And then you have M and Money Penny as well. Um, and I saw that as being quite a shift from what we saw in the decades before that. With Diamonds Are Forever, there was some question whether Lois Maxwell was going to come back or not, and because she was off doing some film, and so, but in the end, she did come back, but she had colored hair darker for some film roles she had just done, and so, like in Diamonds, you know, Money Penny is not in the office; it's like at the customs office, and it's very quick. But like, at, yeah, so at there the was court, you know, she has to wear a hat, so at it could, she could have been replaced at that point if things had gone the other way. Yeah. There's something funny about that appearance that, that she said. Um, in all the films prior to Diamonds, uh, she'd provided her own clothes for filming, and in, and she found that some of her clothes were disappearing, and and, um, and she had to ask for them back once the film had ended. She uh, stipulated in her contract for Diamonds that they provide a costume for her and she was able to take the costume home and of course it was a police woman's outfit I just want to just loop back to what Lisa was saying about sort of like Money Penny aging out. The gross irony is that she and Roger are the same age. And you, you look at the octopus interview to a kill, particularly octopusy, where she's paired up against the younger model, <laughs> and it's like, hmm, the discrepancy of like. I wonder, Paul, how much of that was, you know, they didn't know Roger was going to come back for octopusy, did they? Until late. And no, they didn't. And they did a screen test with James Brolin, and right. it was Maria so I, Clavel. I, was as uh, as yeah. Penelope Smallbone, and they even said in that screen test, Miss Moneypenny yeah, so is retired. I think that's a hangover from that planned transition that yeah. they kept the character but used her as a joke. 
used the setup as they used the setup as a gag that you know Money Penny was aging out, and then of course completely forgot about it for the following film. Right. I'd also like to just touch on something that uh, Lisa said about um, having a female M. It's really interesting, and, and you said making her a more active and more vulnerable character who comes out of the office. It's almost like Bond, being a man, tells her that no, you shouldn't, you shouldn't leave the office, the safety of this place, because you'll be vulnerable, and I know best for you. And then the moment that she actually does leave and follows her, what's considered to be uh, emotional and and uh, without putting too much of a well, they, they actually say motherly maternal instincts. instincts. She says, with all of my instincts. Yeah, but maternally, it's all my instincts as a mother. It's kind of implied that she hasn't made a rational decision because she's been there. And her decision to, to go out into the field and subsequently become captured is a, a direct, direct kind of correlation between her being uh, not able to think dispassionately because she's a woman. And I think that that's, uh, that's, a, that's something that people kind of miss a lot of. They, they, they tend to say, it's brilliant that she got out and she saw a bit more of his character. But what we miss is the fact that they kind of say, well, she should have stayed, stayed in the office. She's a woman. That raises the question for me about like the value of the position as well. Like Now that we have a female, it's okay that she's allowed to just go wandering off to you know, Istanbul or whatever. Um, whereas Bernard Lee's M probably would have security people telling him, no, you can't go. 87, like Roger Moore leaves, got a new bond, but we still have the same M, Robert Brown. We have the same Minister of Defense and we have the same Q, but we have to change the money penny to make sure that the actress is closer to the age of the actor playing Bond. That's the that's the only member of the supporting cast that got changed. Yeah, and Lois Maxwell did not have nice things to say about it publicly. Yeah. No. But that's but that still hasn't essentially changed, and as um, as Lisa says, it's um, it it tends to be about becoming invisible after a certain age, and what not just within the Bonds films, but kind of within media. You get you get a distinctive shift in characterization, women's characters between, you know, under under forty and over forty, and suddenly they're kind of the roles that they can have, um, not just not just in terms of. Lisa put it perfectly when she was saying that you know um, Q is Q is somehow because of his age, um, better because he's had all this time to learn and. And, and he's become more which of a they of, which they flip on um, their head for Skype. Sage wizardy kind of <laughs> right, and well, and also so like that living daylights thing then like creates a precedent. So it's like oh, Pierce Brosnan's now Bond. He must have his own money penny. Oh, Daniel Craig's you know now Bond. He didn't have a money for, penny for his first two films, but then he gets his own money penny. And so like whenever I see stories about. Uh, Naomi Harris. Oh, I hope Daniel Craig comes back. <laughs> yeah, because if he doesn't come back, you're going to get replaced. I maybe not this time. Well, I don't know if this is the case because maybe not. But um, I, I genuinely think she's been she's been such an asset to the series for a start. Secondly, I mean, she really is doing quite a lot more 
than the traditional kind of flirtation. But let's let's face it. Before whatever you want to say about the character, she was pretty much limited to scenes within you know the the, the anti office and a bit of flirtation um, before Bond went went on his way. Um, I think something along the lines of I can't remember how many actual words or lines Lois Maxwell had over the series. License, but I remember it being, kill being the quite, example quite of the few, shortest appearance, um, despite being one of the money penny. No, yeah, no, well, I think two, two, lines. two lines. If that. But I was just thinking, I was just thinking about what you're saying, Ben, about Naomi Harris. Maybe you should stay on. She should. So, if anybody who knows Naomi Harris, I'm not assuming she's listening, but if anybody does, here's the advice: when the cast a new Bond and Barbara Rockley invites you out to lunch, as soon as you sit down, you ask, "When do we start filming?" Because it worked for Judy Dench at Casino Royale. <laughs> they kept her on because it was too awkward a social conversation to have about getting rid of her. Yeah, is it a presumptive close? A presumptive well, close. It's in a, it's in a biography. I, it's actually a very funny story. I think, uh, I, I just, I don't think, um, I might be wrong, but I don't think they're going to get rid of an actor with, who, who is, first of all, she's, she's a really good actor. Um, secondly, she's done so much, she's become really the, the spokesperson uh, for, the, for the franchise in the way that uh, Roger was before. I mean, Daniel's really not that involved in doing a lot of the... She became that because Craig didn't want to do that. So it's like... No, but she's, she's, but she's done it I, I agree well. with you. I, I'm, not, I'm not disputing your argument. I'm just saying, I think, though, she does have a rooting interest yeah. for Daniel Craig to be Speaking Bond of that role, as long there's, as there's he always, can. There's always a figurehead that's not the current James Bond actor because there's events that... It would be too big. It, it's not a big enough event to have the current Bond actor turn up. It used to be Desmond Llewellyn for years that used to do these kind of things. Um, somebody joked that he'd turn up to the opening of a fridge. Um, then it was Scott Beeran. So, and then you know Uncle Roger <laughs> stepped in right for a good period of time, and then Judy Dench started doing some stuff. But it, and then that's really when Naomi Harris took over, as you say, from Skyfall onwards. But when Roger passed, but there's always, there's always that, there's always that space for the, not the current actor, but somebody else figurehead. And she's definitely in, embedded herself. I think, I think, I think the other thing too is really what we're looking at is, is a paradigm shift in the way in which people are looking at uh, characters anyway. And she's as a, as a female uh, character and a woman of color, um, she's really kind of representing um, you know, a diversity in these films that hasn't existed before. And I think it would be unwise to step away from that. Um, I think to explore that is that they've, you know, they've got an opportunity here. Um, and this, this, is, this, this is the first time, I think, that, you know, when we talked about the float, she talks about floating the idea of a spin-off. In the past, if you'd have talked about um, a money spin spin-off, and even the diaries, um, the Money Penny diaries, are very much rooted in her being in the office. This is the first time that you'll actually get a, a, a character who it would make sense for her to have a life outside of the office, one other field agent, because that's what she has been in the past. Um, and I think it's an opportunity to kind of step away from this uh, very particular um, character. Uh, and what Bond represents and trying to do something... Before we push the boat out and 
talk too much more about a potential spin-off and how we, what we'd like to see from it and, and why it may or may not come to pass. I just wanted to round off by talking about that very thing as the that Moneypenny has become now a field agent first and M's confidant second. It felt like there was a reasonable amount of kickback in the general commentary. Oh, well, you've kind of ruined the character, or why? Why would you? You know, like that that wedding to tradition again. Why? Why would we would we expect her to go out and be out in the field? This is not the money penny we know, kind of a thing. I wanted to get people's take on Naomi's Harris, particularly in Skyfall, but then like as it as it has developed over the last couple of films and. Also, when I was thinking about this, I was started to think about the fact that Mary Goodnight goes out into the field and works with James Bond and Man with the Golden Gun. So there's actually Fleming-based precedent for um, not just for these people to be desk-bound and sedentary. <laughs> kind of, uh, although with Mary Goodnight, to disastrous results. But uh, we could talk about that. Yep. Yeah, that, that mission would have been over a lot quicker, wouldn't it? Um, we talked about that before. I just want to spring a, a point before we kind of skip over to that. Is um, Tobias Menzies played Villiers in Casino Royale, and if that, if we're talking about gender being interchangeable in the character, I think that's an example where a dude basically played the role of M's assistant in that film. And it was perfectly fine. Yeah, I had no issue with um, Tobias Menzies playing that that particular role. In fact, I, I, he's a he's a very good actor, and it would have been fine for him to have continued doing well in in the and in the benson in the benson novels bond's personal secretary is is a man and and villiers is a uh, name villiers come on call me out here guys it's um it's a it's a there's a bond connection i think that name as well and it's now just escaping as i'm trying to think about it but it is again it's, it's a situation where um they were at that time trying to confound a kind of um the expectations of what we wanted to see in a Bond film, what we needed. Bond barely has gadgets in that film. Um, you know, you don't have the whole meetings in the office. You don't have the flirtation with money penny. And it all works. It's almost like they said, you know, when we did the survey says questions last week, it's like, what do you actually expect to see from a Bond film? Yeah, and, and Villiers, Villiers, Villiers named after Amherst Villiers. That's right. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. I was having that moment of like, I couldn't remember where that came from. Yeah. The the other thing I wanted to point out was, um, you know, Ponsonby in the books gets replaced by Goodnight. And Goodnight starts off as, you know, a secretary in the double O section, straight replacement for Ponsonby, but then later becomes a field agent in the books. And I think. Yeah. There's a chapter where she, where Goodnight specifically briefs Bond on current events in the Caribbean, and she predicts incorrectly, but it's like a decent analysis that uh, Castro may not be long for this world because things are going badly for And, him. you know, Purvis and Wade always reach back to Fleming, and sometimes in, in opaque ways. And I think if you look at Goodnight's character arc in the books, it's basically Money Penny and Skyfall, mm. to a large degree. And I would—I don't know. Could they have used Goodnight in Skyfall instead of Money Penny for that role? Possibly. There's no reason why they can't bring Goodnight back as a character. I mean, they've recast allies through the years multiple times. Um, I'd rather—I'd rather see, I'd rather see um, Mary Goodnight back than Doctor No back. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I agree, actually. To the question about though, about understanding, you know, how fans were not necessarily some fans, not all fans, were not necessarily happy with the field agent entry way. I actually liked it. I liked it as a concept. I like the fact that Money Penny, much like other core characters and key elements, was getting an origin story so that we could see who she was and where she came from. And so for me, I saw a lot of potential with this with this type of introduction. I think for me where things fell short is the fact that she shoots James Bond. James Bond makes lots of errors, but James Bond gets a redemption narrative and Money Penny her her line to being um the the secretary or personal assistant to M is through demotion and it is through, you know, being chastised both by Bond who keeps saying, you know, field work's not for everyone, but he's saying field work's not for you and the her then her eventually hearing this enough times, deciding field work is not for her. And I've always struggled with that being her character arc. And I'd really had hope. I had a lot of hope for Spectre as a movie, but uh, one of my big hopes was for Money Penny to get some sort of redemption narrative where maybe she will be uh, because she is a trained field agent, maybe she she will be not just a secretary, but she could also be um, sort of a security expert, a protector of M. Right? That she is somebody who's constantly packing, and that you the know, bodyguard. You might, uh, yeah, bodyguard. That she's this benign figure, just you know, playing on the cliche. She's a quote unquote secretary, but really she's somebody who's there to protect him. And they have yeah. that opportunity, but instead, you know, when Mallory faces. Maybe his name is R. The guy who C. played Moriarty. C. Um, but I think that the, the better, yeah. the better opportunity yeah. is when they're in the two cars and bonds with M and they get T-boned and, you know, M gets out, manages to scrabble to the hiding while Bond gets kidnapped and they're in the other car. It should have been Money Penny with M in the car, you know, and she protects yes. M and gets him away, right? And Craig gets captured. That would have been... That would have been a better way of an easy way of fixing both that scene and the redemption arc. Also, a couple of points. One, Bond lecturing Moneypenny, oh, like you, you couldn't do this, says the guy who couldn't pass his tests when he got back. And, uh, you know, well, that's the main thing. Just as a second point, Eon being ridiculously coy about she's Moneypenny, going Mm -hmm. to the point of lying. And that's what they did. That's what they told her to do. That's what Eon did. Oh, no, she's not playing Money Penny. And then, of course, yes, she was playing Money Penny. Yeah. And that then gave Baz Bamboy the chance to gloat at, you you know, when the get, movie came out. So yeah, exactly. you just, you know, just do days. it. You can't keep secrets in a movie like this. You, you can't have reveals like Ben, Ben, who's Remy Malik playing oh. in No Time to Die? He's playing. He's he's playing Time to Die. He's playing and he's playing Anton Time to Die, in which in which case point I is, will like be taking over is, the world, Mister Bond. No time to die. Maybe 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 they've learned. Maybe they've learned to they do it better. Do it with, maybe they didn't do it with Eve Money Finally, Penny, and they didn't do it with Franz Albahauser. Oh no, he's not playing Blofeld. You know, everybody bloody knew that. Um, so. Okay. <laughs> my mother's name was Blofeld. What the hell was oh, that? You know, just saying, like, like a lot of wasted <laughs> effort. Oh, we're also forgetting. We're also forgetting Ben Wishaw is not cute. Oh God, yes. Oh God, yes. 
I mean, the Q one was the worst possibly because there was no twist to the tale. He rocks up, he turns out to be the quartermaster, and he gives him a gun and goes away. And, you know, there's no point in lying about that. Can you imagine 30 years ago, Warner Brothers, oh, we can't tell you who Jack Nichol- Nicholson is playing. <laughs> well, he's got green hair and white skin and red lips. No, we can't tell you. <laughs> who could that possibly be? think there's a bigger issue here when it comes to again this is coming from a different vein this is something that my students and I talked about when we talk about uh, women in action films how oftentimes the writers think that we're dumb as audience members like we just won't get it or we just won't understand it or there's some sort of secret that they have to unearth and then they have to tell us it over and over and over again and we talk about it when it comes to female driven narratives how frustrating it is because it's the same stories um, that are very sort of limited and stereotypical, but you have the same ideas being told to us time and time again. But to be an action woman, you got to be this, you got to be this. And I feel like with some of the writing, and it just sort of to pivot, some of the writing that I've experienced watching some of the Daniel Craig films, and especially the last two, it's like, the writers are telling us over and over the same things over and over and over again. The same archetypes are there. The same dialogue is there time and time again, almost assuming that we're dumb watching these movies. Like we're not going to hook in or catch on. And at the same time, they're going through the secretive um, promotional aspect as if we can't figure it out simply by casting. And I think that's a mistake on their part. I think that they're underestimating us as, as, as a fan group, but just viewers in general. And if there's one push I could put out there to producers and screenwriters is to give us just like to trust that we can follow, trust that we're going to figure this stuff out, give us that respect up front and just craft really good storylines instead of these aha moments that I think are just speed bumps. These are waste of time moments that none of us are surprised. None of us are shocked. No one was surprised that he was Blofeld. Everyone was just like, okay, this is a lot of buildup for a really crummy reveal based on shadow and no shadow and just move the storyline and give us more complicated storylines, give us nuanced characters. There's a lot of space in this movie. You can free yourself up for that you can give us, you know, and you can make little tweaks to storylines that'll give us, you know, more well-rounded characters, more detailed plots, more exciting action sequences. There's space to do these other things that then progress the film and the film series along instead of getting yourselves caught up in these like aha explanatory moments. Uh, do, do you have fears for how they're going to use Lashana Lynch in No Time to Die as 007? Like they're going to waste time building it up to be a, aha, as you know, M briefs and the camera pans around and it's not Bond. Because I, 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 my suspicion is they're going to do that and it's going to. Actually, I think they, I think they believe we're idiots. Mm-hmm. And I go back to the Skyfall buildup. Remember the video blogs? Like one of them was, oh, here's Naomi Harris. I've been training for a long time to shoot a gun. And they sure shooting a gun. Blam, 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 blam. And it's like, oh, but like, oh, is she money paying? No, no. And just like, seriously, like, why do you do this? Why do you treat us like idiots? But they do. 
And imagine being the marketing, being like, no, heck yes, she's Money Penny. And Money Penny shoots again. People might be more excited and interested to go see the film to be like, wow, we've seen Money Penny now has a different type of role. That becomes a marketing tactic that could bring audiences in, could change your promotional materials. Like I see it as a positive sign rather than let's hide it and then, of course, diminish her role. Because they wait until the 145th minute of the movie. Really? Like the thing you've been denying the last six months. Well, thanks. Spectre promotion could have been Blofeld is back, explanation point on the poster. Would have got more excitement than meet meet this Swiss-sounding guy who, you know, Bond used to know as a kid and blah, 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 blah. Uh, however they phrased it in the synopsis. Right. And meanwhile, Sam Mendes had this... Ridiculous explanation. Well, the audience shouldn't, you know, the audience should know any more than the characters know. Really? Have you ever seen From Russia with Love? Because the audience knows a lot more than Bond knows. Thunderbolt. You know, they they don't know everything, but they know a hell of a lot more than Bond does. Which is inherent in the tension there, because you, uh, the, the tension that arises from the fact that you know something that that character doesn't, and that's that's creates the oh my god, we know that this person's gonna, you know maybe kill Bond, and he doesn't know that. that. That creates that suspense and that tension. Right, and and you see all those scenes with Robert Shaw not giving a line. He was like, so by the time he finally speaks in the train, Nash, Captain Nash, it's like, I was like, get ready to pee in your pants, you know, at that point. But also given how much people, when you ask people some of their favorite Bond films, From Russia With Love is always near the top because people love this aspect of it. And they love being in the know when a character who sometimes is presented with omnicompetence. I mean, Bond just knows a lot and does a lot that we know more than him. And we're there watching him not get it. And then we're watching him get it at the end. And there's pleasure in us being maybe for once, like in a superior position or we can see the way that his mind works we have a different vantage point rather than just sort of following along from his point of view or perspective especially if we don't get like an internal monologue from bond so we're still being limited in what we see anyways and i feel the success of that he's victorious in spite of the knowledge right he's, he, he wins in spite of not knowing yeah. Right. He's been played for a fool, but he still overcomes that. Yes. Another scene that like amps up that suspense is like he's making love to Tatiana in the presidential suite or whatever they call it. And then you have that shot of Rosa Klebb and the guy taking the film through the two-way yeah. mirror, one-way mirror, whatever they call it. Holy crap. And like Rosa Klebb is like smoking that cigarette all the way down. Like she's like, you know, it's like she's getting excited. That's 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 a little subtle thing for 1963. So when Sam Mendes says, well, the audience shouldn't know any more than the characters. Oh, be quiet, Sam. Like, you know, go watch some movies. But, but again, this, uh, as, as Lisa said, I would have I would have been far more interested in in a promotion of look, we're getting a new money. Penny is back and she is. She is a completely new character, and and she wouldn't have even had to have had a redemptive arc, I don't think, if we'd have just said, look, she's like a build agent, not a secretary. She's kind of going to play this role rather than the traditional secretarial role, and rather than kind of hide it and lie about it, they just went, this is what she's going to be from now on. She could have been a much more interesting character, and in a sense, it seems that putting her you know, behind the desk outside Mallory's office is ultimately a punishment. 
and, uh, and and a step backwards. And I think it's I think it's one of the real one of the things that I noticed when I saw Skyfall for the first time was the moments where where the audience kind of cheered at certain things. You've got a cheer for the Aston Martin DB5, but you also got probably a not going to see that again. When no. They, I mean, they'll never use that again. In the same way that they'll never go back to it. Barbara Broccoli's holiday um, schedule. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, oh, by the way, they're booking uh, uh, travel now for Bond Twenty Six. I don't just, think just we've done like Milan yet. Italy, I think we should um, go to Milan. <laughs> but you got a cheer. You got a cheer in the end of Skyfall when Bond's in Mallory's office, and suddenly it's it's apparent that. We're going back to the traditional format. People love tradition. Uh, Money Penny outside flirting slightly with Bond. Bond going in and getting his mission briefing in the old traditional building. And it was like we've we've spent four, you know three or four films trying to get you to this point. Uh, yes, but but well, I, also I remember seeing a tweet from Bam Bama Boy. It's like, I was right. I was right. But I can't tell you, but I was right. I mean, he was gloating like hell, and he should have. Well, what actually happened there was um, Naomi Harris did an interview with the Daily Mail um, travel thing. She went to some Caribbean island or something for like a little travel piece or something. And in that interview, she slips and says she's Money Penny in the film. And it got published, and nobody caught it. And, you know, like two months later, three months later, it came out that she was Money Penny. So, you know. Baz didn't really have to do much digging when it was in his own newspaper. He would have to read his own newspaper, though, which is, you know, not super optimal. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't recommend anybody reads the Daily Mail. So. Can we can we swing this round to talk a little bit about a potential spinoff and what we'd like to see and what maybe we get the maybe we get the movie well, we deserve. Before we get it, before we get into that, Paul, I think there's one thing that we should mention because we always mention Dino the Day on this. Podcast. Yeah, let's do it. And I think the one of the worst things they ever did to Money Penny was the end, the the coda to Dino the Day, which was just awful. Before we get to spinoff, though, I just want to like Matt mentioned very quickly, Ian Fleming created another secretary character when he was involved for six to eight months with the Man from Uncle, and his name for her was April Dancer. Well, so. The people who are going to do the heavy lifting, I hate this name. And they, they like came up with their own name. And then eventually they like, th- you know, oh, this secretary character, we don't even need her. But then later, their network, when the show was a hit, they wanted to have a spinoff. We'll have a spinoff featuring a woman agent. And so what happened was NBC was the network and one of their executives was a writer. And she was like pushing this. So her husband was pushing this. And so her idea was to have an agent that, named just Cookie terrible. Fortune. That's just terrible. And like the production team is going, what? Oh, I just, I'm just getting started. I'll, I'll keep this quick. But so, so it's like, they're going, okay, we're already going to have to make a series we don't want to do. There is no way we're going to have a character called Cookie Fortune. So the writer who was assigned to write the pilot for it happened to have access to the Fleming material. Oh, a name called April Dancer. This is a lot better than Cookie Fortune. I'm going to go with this. And they like talked NBC out of Cookie Fortune. Oh, Billy Wilder's doing this movie called The Fortune Cookie. And we might get into legal trouble. So we're going to go with April Dancer. Is that okay? Oh, uh, yeah, I guess so. And so that was the spinoff. And that was the lead character. It's an Ian Fleming name, not an Ian Fleming character, but 
if if there you Anthony go. Horowitz ever re- writes his like twentieth book, and he's this is like the Fleming material he's left. of the news or the uh, the tidbit that Naomi Harris had been already discussing the possibility of a spin-off film with uh, Barry Jenkins potentially at the helm. That seemed to me like the classic uh, trial balloon yep. to see what would happen. And that because it, like two days later, oh, they said no. Like, oh, okay. Well, yeah, thanks. Yeah, Ian lies. Yeah, they well, that's I, um, true. Yeah. I'm going to put my hand up here and I know it's an unpopular opinion because somebody on Twitter said it isn't good. Um, but I actually, for the first time, I think in the past, this wouldn't have been necessarily a good idea to have uh, a money spin spinoff, because I actually don't think it would necessarily done much with the previous portrayal. But the way in which um, she's written now, um, given her backstory, I think there's a lot of legs for this, and I think it could really be the first time Considering that we've had other spin-offs floated before, like the Jinx spin-off, and I just sort of feel like this is the first time that it, it really could work. And I really feel like there could be an opportunity to, to do something with this. Um, I think it's in keeping with uh, kind of the, the general zeitgeist of um, having more female-driven and, and diverse characters. Um, really really good story i certainly think that if you were going to pick a an auxiliary character from the series she's the one that they've invested the most in in the recent times and so it makes an awful lot of sense that that would be the first off the block if you're going to do a disney style rollout well it certainly wouldn't be bill tanner but to to touch on briefly on what lisa said before about the redemptive arc of this character or the need for redemption of this character i think that that would be where you would spin this this narrative from you would have to have you would have to have it kind of resolve that issue and i think that this would be an opportunity to do that rather than have it a, a couple of throwaway lines in 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 a film to have an entire film where you get her I also think that it's a way to resolve another conversation that keeps coming up when we talk about the casting for James Bond. Can James Bond be a woman? Can James Bond be a person of color? I think this, and especially with some of the backlash to Lashana Lynch playing the character 007, I think this is one way that if we want to think of James Bond as becoming, if this is their goal to become a cinematic universe, kind of in the Marvel vein of them, in a sense, giving us um, a woman as as an agent coming to you from you know the makers of James Bond, while then still preserving certain identity char- characteristics for James Bond. I think it's a way to maybe um, a p- potentially a way for them to resolve this conflict. And I also think that if they do do a money penny story or spinoff, 
I think that, I hope that they come and talk to me. Um, But I do think that there are certain things that I would like them to avoid, which are the basic cliche storylines when it comes to not only women and typically white women in film, but also the way that women of color, specifically black women are typically presented in narratives with some of the storylines, the expectations, um, an over uh, an overt focus in on how they differ from the status quo. I really do want to see a storyline based on a person and, and motivation um, and and capacity and competency, rather than just some explanation that focuses too much on all these other typical narratives that are there. So I think there's a lot of constructive potential here. I don't know if they'll bite at it, and I don't know if they'll you know, sort of give us something that is different from the basic status quo. I, I think that um, absolutely um, it would be a missed opportunity for them, considering how much um, Barbara has talked about the idea of um, doing something, not a, not a female James Bond necessarily, but I, and I think that the, what I would really hope that they wouldn't do is just try to make her a black female James Bond. I think that what you would want to do is to, um, and, and Lisa and I have sort of discussed this briefly before, but to make make it more about intelligence gathering, maybe make it a bit more um, more of a spy story necessarily, than make it less of a blunt instrument, because that's what Bond is. Yeah. Make it more about her as a character, because this guy called Haphazard Stuff um, did this montage of, you know, promotions from Die Another Day. My character is Bond's equal. My character is Bond's equal. Like about six clips run together. It's like Bond's equal. It's like, okay, we get it. You're Bond's equal. Fine. It's like, how about something new? Well, how about not comparing her to James Bond? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, ex- me, like that. Yeah. A, a, a female... Um, James Bond. We we just need a, a, a female character who is who is not compared and and, and given value. Can, can, she can exist within this universe, absolutely. So can but I she, can I but, can I give you why I don't think they'll do it? Is yeah, you can't have James Bond in it. That would probably be the guardrails that they'd put on it on the script. You can't have James Bond in it. Then, do you show other double O agents? <laughs> you know, in the division. So probably not because they don't want to dilute who they're going to announce as the new Bond if they do, you know, in between films. Yeah. So then you've got no active field agents in the film. Uh, so then you would have to be limited to a story where either something go. I mean, this is the American scriptwriter kind of like 101. Something goes terribly wrong with an MI6. The blame gets pinned on her. She goes rogue to prove her innocence. I mean, it's basically Mission Impossible at that point. Uh, pick a mission, pick, pick a mission impossible film because they're all pretty much the same. Part. Um, I, I, couldn't I you sit it before Skyfall when she's a field agent, but you know, not had her reputation tarnished? I, I think if you're a, if you're a competent writer, you don't have to go down these um, particular obvious tropes. Um, I think if you watch something like Killing Eve, you don't necessarily have to have explosions and and the light to, to create a gripping narrative it's quite possible to have something that focuses on character and and relationships i yes james you might be absolutely right they might turn around and say you can't have bond in it but there are plenty of opportunities to ride within that universe 
that don't have James Bond in it. And I agree. I think the idea of showing... I used to really love the idea of having a scene where, you know, Bond is sitting in a bunk with a bunch of other casting wannabes, if you know what I mean. Like, you remember where they always kind of floated the idea of, like, Damien Lewis and, you know, all the other kind of actors who were kind of, like, um, floated for the roles. I just like the idea of, like, one or two of them coming out of M's office as he goes in uh, as a kind of a sly nod uh, to the people that didn't didn't make it. Um, but I think you can you can do it without without having Bond in it, and I think you can focus on character and make it uh, make it an interesting film. A Netflix a Netflix series, <laughs> Strangways and Quarrels, <laughs> ten episodes. <laughs> They get into some adventures, and there you go. Some suspicious, some, just some suspicious rock samples. Oh, you go. For my money, the the less referential it is to the main story arc, the main James Bond arc, the better in a sense. Although I think the reason to make the film from a studio perspective is to be able to trade off the Bond brand. But I just think that the story is going to be a lot stronger. The character is going to be a lot less encumbered if it's not being completely referential to the events of Skyfall Inspector or once it comes out, No Time to Die. In other words, Paul, you're saying that give you more run to room uh, or you know, just to have more flexibility. Room room to run, sorry. I'm already, tired. You and Michael are on the phone. I've already started treatment on it. And I, oh, and whilst uh, <laughs> which, uh, the plot details of which I'm not going to reveal on there, suffice to say that it does the opposite to what Paul just suggested. <laughs> oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm getting a call from Michael G. Wilson. Bill, you said, you, you, just, you just gave away our next <laughs> Netflix series. Oh, I'm sorry, Michael. Sorry, let me, I'm on a podcast now. I can't. I can't talk. Who amongst us would 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 hang up on Michael G. Wilson if he was calling whilst we were recording a podcast? I think it was pranked by Bill anyway. Depends. Depends if it was an abusive. I podcast. could patch you right in. <laughs> I will say this. I will say this. I think. I think if they do do this movie. I think they should get on to Lisa because I don't think that there is really uh, anyone better qualified to uh, at least steer them in the away from a, a, a direction that um, they have have gone in the past. Give Lisa creative consultant credit. Yes. There you go. I'm here. <laughs> you can find my, I'm at Cinema on Fire if you want to tweet me. <laughs> That's how they usually make overtures. <laughs> yeah. That's how you get the tap on the back. Yeah. <laughs> I, I know the answer to this is probably no, but did anybody read the Money Penny one shot comic book? That came I didn't out? even know there was one. Not yet. No. Yeah, I'm I'm aware of it. I didn't. I there we I, go. I have read a couple of the comics, um, but uh, I haven't read that particular one. Right, I'm going to read the synopsis to you. So, uh, blah blah blah, artist writer, a never before told mission starring Money Penny, friend of James Bond, former MI6 field agent, and bodyguard of M! Exclamation mark. On a routine protection miss mission, Moneypenny discovers a complicated assassination plot that bears a startling resemblance to a terrorist attack from her childhood. Can she keep call upon her secret agent skills to t- stop? Probably not. Yes. Sounds, it sounds more like the synopsis of a, a video game. 
at, at the risk of something I should uh, say for a meeting with studio people, I, I could see like uh, Money Penny meets up with Honey Ryder. By this time, Honey Ryder has finished the uh, encyclopedia and <laughs> they team up. Somebody, and somebody there you go. Google and uh, it's, look, it's a, it's a laptop and it's all the information that you could possibly want. Yeah, but they, they don't get uh, Wi Fi encrypted right. either. It's, um, not that we know of. <laughs> uh, oh, she's she's um she's she's obliquely in the she's in the dossier of uh, she makes funny comments in the uh, Golden Eye sixty four um, dossiers. Yeah, but I'm thinking as in all the cutscenes they have in you know the modern era Bond games. I, I don't think you can call them modern era now anyway. But the EA and Activision tranche. That's when they had cutscenes between the missions and stuff before then it was just text and voiceover but i don't think money pen is a character really features in any of them in fact in everything or nothing they create a new one which is you know q's assistant played by a japanese actress and um that could have you know why not use money penny there i don't know samantha bond does the voice in a couple of them but it's more like a here's the information press x to do this or something kind of I don't recall her in the 2005 from Russia with Love game. Uh, oh, you Connery's are right. Voice. Lois Maxwell's likeness does appear in that film, in that game. That's, that's does she? the one. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. Um, one last thing I want to mention was um, somebody brought up on Twitter today about the GoldenEye draft by Michael Franz because we were kicking around some things about it. Um, Ponsonby is in the GoldenEye first draft and Moneypenny is not. So Michael Franz was actually, you know, the late okay, Michael Franz was actually dipping back to the Fleming. Um, canon to when he was rebooting the series on that film, and of course when they when Fierstein came in to polish it up, of course it went like yeah, and Ponsonby's out, money pays back. Yeah, and the other the other tidbit from that is is Double O Five is in that film, and Double uh, O Five is a sheep. And uh, France also uh, predicted a attack on the Twin Towers in that first draft. Maybe we should do a podcast <laughs> audio play Goldeneye first draft. That would be a fun thing to do. Welcome to all the women's voices. <laughs> oh, God. Oh. No, okay. this is not happening. Apart properly being a female, female producer who's, who is often cited as um, pushing uh, for, for more female representation in film, and certainly within the making of films, um, and treating female characters not in a particularly wonderful way within those films and certainly certainly in, in Spectre I thought that that was uh, not great stuff going on in there it seems to me that it would be crazy not to do not not to use this uh, this this potential opportunity um, and I think it's a shame that she she shot it down that's that's my uh, that's my personal take on it what do you think it would take for the timing to be right? I think the timing is right now. Um, I, I genuinely do. Um, I think sometimes... So, but here's a slightly controversial thing I'm going to say. Once upon a time, James Bond used to be, they, you know, used to be quite progressive in the sense of like, well, the gadgets that we were seeing would be quite modern and new and kind of ahead of its time. It, it, created, a, it created a spy genre or a type of film. But very quickly, it started to be reactive more than leading. Uh, or more than proactive, and you started to see the Bond films getting made in response to other films. 
and I think you've got a, a situation where sometimes they don't take enough risks, and when they have taken risks, it has generally paid off. I think Casino Royale was a risk, and it and it is still in my mind one of the best Bond films. But very quite quite quickly, they're they're, they're trying to backpedal and get get things back to the status quo. But you know, you've got to lead a bit. You've got to be proactive a bit. And I, I don't think there's anything wrong with steering the steering the direction of the franchise away from from these kind of slightly more, shall we say, misogynistic ideas. So I'm, I'm trying to unpack your argument, Ben. Are you saying that if they did a Money Penny spin-off, it would seem to be a reaction to other franchises doing similar things? Or are you saying doing a Money Penny spin-off would be a brave risk for the franchise I think it would be a risk, take? and I think it would be... Because I could yeah, argue I, both. I, I hear what you're saying. Um, whichever, whichever side of the argument you want to take, I think they should make it. And I think, um, personally, I think it's a... I think it's a it's a brave choice, and I think one that should be made. The bravery comes in how you execute it. It's not in it's not in making a spin off character from a successful franchise because it's not brave, <laughs> but it is in the choices you make. If you make it more Casino Royale than you do Moonraker or Quantum of Solace, right, which were wholly reactionary kind of films to the success of other things. I also think that the phrase "the time isn't right" is such to me a throwaway comment that is often used. Um, when we talk socially about sometimes the, the representation of women, like, should there be, you know, a female president in the United States? Oh, no, we're not ready for it. The time isn't right. And for me, it just when it comes to women on screen or women in society and culture or politics, it's just such an easy throwaway comment that is mobilized by people who are in positions of power, regardless of their sex or their gender expression. So it doesn't surprise me that Barbara Broccoli would say something like that, but it's just, it's a typical throwaway line when it comes to to women. So for me, that's how I read it. Like, oh, we're just not ready for it. It's like, eh. Stop. In the case of the presidency and potentially money penny, arguably overdue, not <laughs> not right. Or, uh, think hashtag Regretsky. Thank you guys for joining me. It's been interesting and illuminating and meandering, and that's what makes the best podcast. <laughs> We'd, it'd have been a lot quicker if we hadn't kept getting those calls interrupting us. Um, Paul, thanks for thanks for having me this week. I uh, really enjoyed it. Pleasure, pleasure. Thank you for coming along. It's nice to be back on the back on the show after a, a small absence, and uh, hopefully you guys keep coming, showing up at strategic times and talking James Bond with me. Um, James is ever ever present. Found us a, a, a money penny themed song to play out on, so <laughs> we hope you enjoy that. Yeah, I thought you know the South Korean K-pop band was pretty good the other week. I don't know what you thought about it. If you got to hear that one, it was uh, great. I never listened to it our podcast. Thumbs up. <laughs> oh no, I was on them. I don't need to listen to. Them. <laughs> Um, so this week, because we're doing Money Penny, um, I dug through the, the depths of YouTube that has less than 10 views on videos, because that's where all the gold is. That's where all the gold's at. Um, and I found a couple of really like funny tracks, but this one I actually really like. So we're actually, I'm going to say, play out on a half-decent song this week, rather than something silly. Um, it's by a German four-piece. They sing in English. Um and it's a song written, a melancholy song written by James Bond to Money Penny, explaining why things didn't quite work out for them because he's kind of busy with his job. <laughs> Excellent. Yay! Oh, mate. <laughs> all right, we'll talk to you all next week. Have a great, have a great week. Take it easy. Bye, Paul. Take care. Cheers.
My name is Bob.